Sup, you beautiful bastards. Hope you had a fantastic Tuesday. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Buckle up, hit that like button, and let's just jump into it. And the first things we're gonna talk about today are some internet slash business news quickies. First up is an update to a story that we've been covering about how streaming services have been acquiring streaming talent, signing them to exclusive deals. It's kind of just been changing the streaming entertainment landscape. You know, the past news we saw, you had Ninja, Shroud, then King Gathalion, all moving over to Mixer. And the newest player in the exclusive game was Courage, AKA Jack Dunlop. But of massive note here, he didn't ditch Twitch to go to Mixer. He signed exclusively to YouTube Gaming, which is kind of funny since the last time we talked about these exclusive deals, I kind of joked that YouTube was like, hey, why why do we have to all of a sudden play this game? Which it appears apparently they are. And it's actually believed by those in the community that this is by far not the last person we're gonna see. And actually on that note, you had eSports and gaming consultant Rod Breslau tweeting, Courage's agency loaded negotiated the deal, the same agency who represents Ninja, Shroud, Tim the Tapman, Lyric, and Summit, among other clients. Nearly all of Loaded's clients are in current negotiations with other streamer platforms, most of them with Mixer, or have already signed deals to stay at Twitch, sources say. We also saw Ryan Wyatt, the global head of gaming and virtual reality at YouTube, also a man who gave me my first fantasy football loss this weekend, tweeting, we're investing heavily into on-platform creators. And when asked, does this mean YouTube will be investing more resources into developing the live part of their platform? Ryan Wyatt responded, yes. Yeah, just this space in general right now is fascinating. Because, you know, I mean, a lot of people, when they're talking about the streaming wars, they're talking about, you know, H. HBO Max, Disney's new venture, Netflix. And here it's, you know, YouTube, Twitch, and Mixer, but it's really Microsoft and Amazon and Google. And just like the other streaming war, it appears that there is a heavy focus on exclusives. And I guess we'll just have to wait to see who wins while a lot of these streamers just make crazy money. Then it feels like it really snuck up. We have the KSI versus Logan Paul rematch. They're fighting this Saturday here in LA. There's been a lot of talk of, you know, is this going to be as successful, less successful, more successful? Some of the big changes with this one is it's a pro fight, right? So lighter gloves, no head guards. Also the undercard is filled with pro legitimate boxers. It's also notably not being streamed on YouTube. It's being streamed on Dazzin. Right now, some people are saying it's leaning towards maybe this is going to be less successful. This because according to reports, there are still thousands of of tickets still available for the fight. But of course, that could just be kind of lower excitement based off the region. The last fight was in the UK. KSI has a larger audience, so maybe that plays a role. Also, right now, there's no way to know if in-person ticket purchases versus, you know, Dazzin subscriptions, if, if those kind of trend the same way. But ultimately, we'll have to wait to see what the numbers are after the event. Personally, I'm really interested to see what happens when you take this this very strange, wild thing that was the first event, and you mix it with something that, that's far more mainstream. Right? Does it kill it? Do you limp through it? Does it evolve into something even bigger and more awesome. You know, we'll have to wait and see there. And then finally, with these quickies, we had the news around a band. Specifically here, we're talking about a YouTube creator by the name of Jarvis. Right, you look to his channel, he's getting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views on Fortnite content. But it appears that that may have come to an end because Epic, the creator of the game, hit him with a lifetime ban. This because Jarvis was using an aimbot in Fortnite's non-competitive mode. And also for those that are not gamers, uh, an aimbot essentially makes it so you like almost miss none of your shots. And the way a lot of people learned about this is that Jarvis himself made a video he even, in the video, he kind of breaks down crying and he acknowledges that he was completely wrong here. And in general, the majority reaction to this video were a lot of people calling for Epic to unban him. Some arguing that the permanent ban was unfair. A number of people pointing to an instance where you had players in a pro tournament that were cheating, but instead of a lifetime ban, they were hit with a temporary ban and were even able to compete in Fortnite World Cup. But also at the same time, you have people countering that argument saying, well, it's a different kind of cheating. That was pro players cooperating, teaming up when they were supposed to be competitors. But what Jarvis did is that he used cheating software. Granted, 
granted, it wasn't in a pro tournament, it wasn't in a competitive mode, but it was still cheating software, which Epic says that they have a zero tolerance policy for. Right, and essentially the idea of that zero tolerance policy is even if it's in a non-competitive mode, if you're using cheating software, you're giving other players an infuriating experience. Right, maybe you keep getting killed by people using aimbots, you think, why the fuck am I playing this game? In theory, it hurts the community and the game itself. Yeah, with this one, I'd really love to know your thoughts because I mean, once again, if you look at the content and obviously creators can pivot to different things all the time. His career, and I know when I'm talking about games, some of you roll your eyes, but his career is heavily focused on this content and all of a sudden, it's gone. But yeah, with this one and of course anything, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. And then in sometimes I just hate Humans news, let's talk about this news surrounding Popeyes. Right, a little while ago, they did this kind of limited release of their new chicken sandwich. You had reports and people saying, hey, it's better than Chick-fil-A. Almost instantly, people started swarming Popeyes. All of a sudden, they were sold out. People were getting angry. Then last week, Popeyes comes out with the announcement. Hey, you, we know that you love the sandwich. They're all back on Sunday. Right, seemingly kind of another little jab at Chick-fil-A, which is closed on Sundays. And you know, Sunday rolls around and the sandwiches are released. A lot of people lining up once again. And then we get the news last night at a Maryland Popeyes, people were lined up, you know, waiting to give their order. Apparently someone cuts or allegedly cuts. That leads to an altercation. It ends up outside and then someone got stabbed to death. A 28 year old man was killed. And according to police, we have been able to determine preliminarily that this is related to the release of the sandwich here at this restaurant. This individual was in line specifically for the sale of the sandwich when another customer and he got into an altercation and that ended with the victim being stabbed outside of the business. Which a massive note here, as of recording this video, the person who killed the other man is still out there. Police are searching for him. And that's a story based off of what we know from police right now. Because every now and then when I see a story like this, I'm like, maybe we should just hit the reset button. There's no lesson to learn with this story. It's not like you're like, oh wait, so we're not supposed to kill people because of an overhyped sandwich? Just kind of another daily confirmation that human beings are capable of the dumbest, most horrible shit. So there's that. Also, completely unconnected to this story, I got the, the, the chicken sandwich yesterday. It's just okay. I feel like I should be able to sue Popeyes for false marketing. They call that a spicy chicken sandwich? Spicy to who? Anyway, moving on. And then finally, let's talk about the United States and climate change. And so if you didn't see, yesterday the Trump administration announced that it was officially withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, right? That international accord signed by 195 countries that pledged, among other things, to cut greenhouse gas emissions. And one of those countries was the United States under the Obama administration, which signed in 2016 and was also a key leader in crafting the agreement and getting others to sign on. But you know, as we've seen, Donald Trump has long been critical of the Paris Agreement, arguing that it hurts US competitiveness and the economy. Right, so while the Trump administration moved to formally withdraw the United States from this agreement is a big deal, it is also not a surprise. In fact, even back in June of 2017, Trump officially announced that he was going to take the United States out of the agreement. But after that announcement, the United States did not immediately leave the accord. And that's because when all the countries signed on back in 2016, they agreed to rules set by the UN that said no country could leave for three years. And if a signatory country did decide to leave the agreement, they would then be subject to a one-year waiting period before the withdrawal took effect. So on November 4th, 2019, exactly three years to the day after the agreement was finalized, the Trump administration pulled the United States out of the deal. With Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announcing the move on Twitter, writing, today we begin the formal process of withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. The US is proud of our record as a world leader in reducing all emissions, fostering resilience, growing our economy, and ensuring energy for our citizens. Ours is a realistic and pragmatic model. Now the timing of all of this is actually somewhat interesting. Right now that this has been done, the United States has one year before it is fully out 
out of the climate agreement. Which interestingly enough means that the United States would be entirely withdrawn from this agreement one day after the 2020 election. And while most of the Democratic presidential candidates have said if elected they would rejoin this deal, even if Donald Trump were to lose to one of them and then a transition of power happened as it should, that person still wouldn't be in office until January 2021. So it looks like the United States is definitely getting out and they would be the first and only to do so. Now, with all of that said, what does this mean moving forward? Well, there are three main implications here. First is the general impact of climate change. One of the main overarching goals of the Paris Agreement was to keep global warming well below a rise of two degrees Celsius, with the general aim of not letting it go above 1.5 degrees Celsius if possible. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, backed by a massive scientific consensus, has said that in order to reach that ambitious goal, we as a global community need to slash carbon emissions in half by 2030 and net zero in 2050. And if we fail to do so, scientists and experts have warned that we could face irreversible impacts of climate change. Right, and so when signing the Paris Agreement, each country set its own goals to reduce emissions and many wealthier and more developed countries, which at the time included the United States, also agreed to help poorer and developing countries cope with the effects of climate change. Right, and critics of Trump's decision to withdraw the United States from this agreement have said that this is a massive step backward in the fight against climate change, especially because the United States is the second biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world after China. Which brings us to the second implication, which is the impact of the United States withdrawing from the Paris Agreement on the effectiveness of the whole deal itself. Right, without the United States, these other signatory countries have to figure out how this agreement works without the United States. And specifically, that means other major polluters like China and India have to step up and fill the vacuum left by the United States. As the number one polluter, China has made big promises to cut their emissions, but they have done little to deliver on those promises. Also, not a shocker, if you watch yesterday's show, India also has a long way to go, right? They're in the middle of a growing massive pollution crisis. And these big players matter because in 2017, the United States, China, and India together accounted for almost 50% of global emissions. But uh, a note here, and it's one of the biggest differences between the United States and the other two countries here, is that under UN rules, China and India are still considered developing countries. And so they're actually not obligated to curb emissions. In fact, under the Paris Agreement, China actually said that it would peak emissions in 2030, while the United States said that it would cut them drastically. But also, as reports have pointed out, both India and China still agreed to cut emissions as part of this agreement, in large part because the United States was taking action. Right, so with the United States being gone, it could be argued that China and India will now be even less likely to reduce their emissions. Which, and, and this is a massive thing with the Paris Agreement, none of the commitments countries make are binding. Right, it was kind of seen as this double-edged sword. It's beneficial because it got other countries that would otherwise not agree to legally binding commitments to sign, but it also means that none of the countries are actually held to their commitments. And so if a big power player and climate change leader like the United States pulls back on those commitments, it could signal to other countries that they could do the same. And then the third major implication here is the economic impacts. Right, in addition to the scientific warnings about rising sea levels, extreme weather, and the disastrous effects climate change will have on agriculture and wildlife, many have also said that withdrawing from the agreement is actually a bad economic decision. This because the Trump administration has not wanted to invest in clean energy and renewable technologies that are becoming a huge market. As Andrew Steer, the president of the World Resources Institute, said in a statement, Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement fails people in the United States who will lose out on clean energy jobs as other nations grab the competitive and technological advantages that the low carbon future offers. But also, it should be noted, long before yesterday, the administration has essentially moved forward like the withdrawal from the agreement was already done, pushing ahead with plans and actions that went entirely against the U.S.'s pledge under the agreement to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by nearly a quarter of 2005 levels by 2025. Among other things, the Trump administration has continually rolled back Obama-era environmental rules that attempted to reduce carbon emission, things such as regulations on coal-fired power plants and other regulations aimed at increasing fuel efficiency standards. And already, this has made an impact on the United States' carbon output. In 2018, U.S. carbon emissions increased significantly. Near the Environmental Protection Agency chief, Andrew Wheeler, specifically saying that the rise was caused by, quote, an uptick in manufacturing and industrial output. And Trump, for his part, has made it abundantly clear that he views increasing fossil fuel and coal production as a more important priority than addressing climate change, even if those plans go against the findings of his administration's own scientists. And while speaking in France this summer, the president said, I feel that the United States has tremendous wealth. The 
wealth is under its feet. I've made that wealth come alive. I'm not going to lose that wealth. I'm not going to lose it on dreams, on windmills. But regarding that money, it's important to point out that many economists and other experts have said that investing in the clean and renewable energy sector is actually a huge economic investment. And as one report framed it, many climate policies pay off in the near term in jobs, economic growth, or reductions in local air and water pollutants, even putting aside their climate-specific benefits. In short, many carbon-reducing policies are things that make sense for countries to do anyway for reasons beyond saving the world from climate change. And finally, re regarding my opinion on this, I'm actually a little bit torn. I will say, I think without a doubt, the United States and other countries need to move to cleaner energy. But also, we shouldn't be blind to the fact that most of the countries that were in this agreement have not hit their goals. If you have a non-binding agreement and most of the countries aren't even doing what they said they would do, it's not an agreement. It's like a general idea. It's like if me and a bunch of my other overweight friends are like, we're going to lose weight. Let's all sign this paper saying we will stop eating our feelings. Greg, don't worry. It's not like we're going to charge you if you don't do it. Just sign. We're in this together. It's not an agreement. That's a general idea and a positive thought. And to reiterate, this is not me saying, fuck the planet. We should go the complete opposite way because of the flaws around this agreement. Action needs to be taken. And unfortunately, the, the one thing, even, even if it is a symbolic leaving of an agreement, it is a showcasing that the, the actions are not going in the right direction. Actions on actually six key issues. And I'm not pulling that six number out of nowhere. There was actually a report put out today signed by over 11,000 scientists from over 150 countries. And on top of saying that if action is not taken, that humanity will experience untold suffering thanks to climate change. They list six key issues that need to be addressed. Replacing fossil fuels, cutting the emissions of climate pollutants such as methane and soot, eating less meat, restoring and protecting ecosystems, building a carbon-free economy, and stabilizing population growth by investing into family planning services and growth education. But hey, that's where we are with this story. A little bit of my opinion, some more updates. And of course, now I pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts on this? And that is ultimately where I'm going to end today's show. And hey, if you like this video, let us know. Hit that like button. Also, if you're new here, definitely tap that subscribe button, tap that bell to turn on notifications. Also, if you're not 100% filled in, you can check out my latest podcast and or maybe dismiss yesterday's Philip DeFranco show you want to catch up. You can click or tap right there to watch either of those right now. But with that said, of course, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.